Washington, D.C., WBAI in New York City, and we will be having a special guest coming on soon. But first, Ariel, maybe we should just uh, talk about what a week it has been. Whew. Well, I certainly never expected this myself, and uh, I I've been awake at night as we watch all of this uh, play out, as we watch Trump threaten war against nonviolent protesters, against the American people. Well, not just threaten war, we have him actually waging war. Those pictures of him uh, trying to walk across the street where we have walked many a time from the White House over to St. John's Church and to uh, send in the police and the military first to tear gas and um, uh, slam people to the ground, push them aside. Uh, to get over to the church himself so he could stand there with a Bible was quite a scene that, you know, it just is, is so frightening. It feels like this is uh, the beginning of a real fascist state where you call in the military and then the president stands there holding a Bible he never reads in front of a church he never goes to. I was really happy to see the uh, people from the church, the... Uh, a uh, reverend from the church, uh, several of them coming out and slamming Trump for what he had done and talking about him uh, desecrating the, the Bible and uh, that he was never, even, they were never even informed that he was gonna come there. But in general, I think what we are worried about is uh, how Trump is wanting to be the law and order president and threatening to send in not the National Guard, which is already the National Guard have been called in dozens of states because the governor has the right to mobilize the National Guard. But and already making things worse in worse many of those states. Worse. Yeah, but then saying on top of the National Guard that he is threatening to use a law from 1807, the Insurrection Act, to then mobilize or send the U.S. military non-National Guard into wherever he wants to. Now, he hasn't actually invoked that yet, and there's been quite a lot of backlash. Uh, and he's backed down from it a little bit. Well, that's right. But um, as usual, we haven't heard enough from the Democrats coming out and saying, uh, the leadership of the Democrats saying, you know, what the hell does he think he's doing? No way we're going to let that pass. Uh, and... Uh, we, the people, though, have not been intimidated. And in fact, the protests have grown since then. It's really been encouraging to watch. And it brought me back to uh, something that you've been saying, Medea, uh, over the past couple of months. You said, 
why are, well, actually way before then, since Trump came into office, why aren't the American people rising up? And the American people, in fact, are now rising up. Huge, huge, huge protests all over the country. And Ariel, something that I find really uh, encouraging is all the solidarity protests happening around the world. It's amazing. You see people in all the European countries, you're seeing them in uh, African countries, uh, people going out despite COVID, despite even uh, restrictions in their country that they're not allowed to come out just like here and coming out anyway to show solidarity and also point out the racism in their own societies. So this is really stirring up a lot of um, not only protests, but demands for changes um, in our country and in other countries like in the UK and other European countries where the same kind of racism plagues their societies. It has certainly been long enough and this change is way, way overdue. Uh, I'm so glad that uh, we're watching things really happen and I think this is a, a turning point. I hope this is a turning point, uh, not just for our country, but for the world. I know when I saw that, that scene outside of uh, Lafayette Park, I thought, you know, this looks like uh, this. This looks like the West Bank. This looks like a a war zone. Absolutely. So we are very delighted and honored to be able to bring on our uh, first speaker in this segment, um, who is somebody that I adore. Have worked with quite a long time uh, as part of a group of mothers who have lost their children to police violence. Uh, her name is Darlene Kane. She started a group called Mothers on the Move. And she uh, counsels other mothers, she counsels youth. Uh, she is a uh, street protester herself. We've been on the streets with her and I know she's been out on the streets uh, during these days. Uh, she is a grandmother, although she uh, looks like a very young person and acts like one. Uh, she is um, a real inspiration. And so Darlene, thank you so much for taking the time to come on with us this morning. Darlene, if you could start by telling us what happened to your son and telling us about who your son was. Okay, so Dale was, my son's name was Dale Graham. He was 29 years old. He was a law student at University of Baltimore. He also was the intern for NAACP um, during the time of his death. And he had two children, three and six. And um, Dale loved going to school and um, he went to three different colleges. And um, what happened is I was told, because the story is still very not unclear, that it was a domestic dispute because Dale abruptly had to leave his home. And um, the next thing I heard the next day is that he was killed by the police. And now you have to go by the narrative of the media and the police telling you that he looked like he had a weapon and that they shot him five times. And um, it was very graphic about how Dale died because um, first they said he got shot two times. Then with the autopsy, I had to find out that he got shot five times. And so um, the way that he was killed and the way he was gunned down, um, he aspirated on a bullet 
He got shot in his hand. He got shot in his shoulder. He got shot in his stomach. He got shot in his back. And it was very horrific. And um, that's what made me say, I have to take a stand. Um, many people are incarcerated today for domestic violence. And um, they're supposed to be helped um, with training with domestic violence. And so it's so much resources that we're supposed to have out here. And I don't feel as though he had to be gunned down the way that he was gunned down. And then to was told that he didn't get shot in the back because I had a feeling that he ran. Anybody will run when they're outnumbered. And they was like, oh, no, you know, um, he didn't get shot in his back. So when the autopsy came back, he did get shot in his back. So I just felt like he was defenseless if he got shot in his back, the front and the back. And so that's why I advocate for my son and others for um, victims of police brutality and um, can continue to be united in this fight with mothers and families with gun violence and domestic violence as well because of where, how we are losing our children and how we're losing our loved ones. So the death of George uh, Floyd must bring back all the memories all over again for you. Um, yes, because I actually watched the video because it was sent to me and to hear him calling for his mother, it just got me so emotional thinking were our children calling for us, you know, when they were gunned down or, you know, beat up and shot and killed. You know, we try to figure, like, what was their last words? They probably was like, you know, mom or calling out for their children because they knew that they could feel that they weren't going to make it and they weren't going to survive. And looking at a film, seeing somebody begging for their life, pleading for their life, innocent bystander sitting by, videoing it, it was so inhumane. And it just was, it's just, it just, brought back old wounds for me. I thought about my friends and automatically all the mothers started calling one another. Even people who didn't lose a loved one to uh, the police were calling me, seeing how I was doing. Also, people were just like, this is just horrible. And then the youth, I went to catch the subway the other day and the young man was fishing with his fingers. He was rocking his legs while he was talking to me about the incident. And this young guy was going to work. And so people all over America are terribly affected by this and these type of actions that need to stop. And we have to take some type of action because we cannot allow it to keep going on, not for our children, not for us, not for anyone. You see these very uh, incredibly uh, heartfelt talks that young people are giving out on the streets saying, you don't know what it's like to be a young black man. You don't know what it's like to live every day wondering if you're going to be stopped by the police, if you're going to be uh, shot. Um, you just live in this sense of fear and uncertainty. Um, can you tell us a little bit about uh, what it's like being black in America today? Okay, so I usually do a lot of... Um, I, I walk the streets a lot, so I talk to a lot of guys on the corner. Um, sometimes when I was driving, I see police jump out the cars. So what it is, is they don't understand that we don't condone these young guys being on the corner. 
and a lot of people um, are taking care of their grandmothers. They're um, helping their mothers, but we know it's not, we don't condone that. And then a lot of people just um, right now are just really going through. A lot of these young guys have a lot of kids already at a young age, and they think they have to make instant money. But when the police comes out to talk to them and harass them or throw them to the ground, face down, you know, and tell them, get out the car, they're not having a conversation because these guys only have, it's not even what they have on them. It's not even worth, I'm not saying get locked up, but have a conversation, develop a relationship, see what these guys are going through, see how you can help them because now before the COVID-19, we supposed to have been having um, the men walk the streets and the police supposed to have been giving out resources of how these young men can get jobs. So it's, it's just, it's just so much. Yeah. Are there jobs for them? Um, I don't believe there's a lot of jobs for them, but I have heard that some organizations have, have helped them and they try to help the squeegee boys as well. So, um, what does that mean? And it's just hard. And it's just hard because also you have to remember that these guys are on the corner. They have lack of sleep. They don't have the training to go to the working world to understand that um, they have to be on a schedule. They have to work for somebody. They've been working for themselves for so long. And it may feel like they can make money in a day that they can make in a week so you have to change the mindset and i just feel like everything is about training coming out talking to people developing relationship and that's the best thing you can do but they can't keep coming out into the community two and three and four officers jumping one guy and everybody has to sit there and watch it and so i'm hoping that i can do something in reference to what can we do as citizens when we see police throwing up stupid things, um, six and seven and eight guys on top of one, or one person, you know, mistreating a person, how can we tell that officer, like, hey, calm down, you have a child at home, um, you know, we're not gonna sit here and video you killing somebody. So it's something we're gonna have to do as citizens as well to let them know that when they take their uniform off, they're people just like me and you. They have children just like me and you. And um, they should want to want their children to be safe and live also. So think about the things that they're doing. So now we have um, the president calling out the, well, many of the, the states already have called out the National Guard in addition to the police. And the president has threatened to use his power to put uh, the U.S. military into cities if they... Uh, states are not able to calm the situation themselves um, because of the looting. So how do you feel about the president's threat to even further militarize uh, our cities? That's going to be more trauma on top of trauma. I mean, like, it's just too much mentally for people to deal with the COVID-19. We're dealing with the police uh, brutality. Now we have to sit outside and look at these big tankers outside, men with these big rifles. That is so scary for anyone. And um, and then the one to tear gas everybody. And as 
Ariel said, um, people already have respiratory problems. So if you don't care about the people, you don't care if they're going to get sick or die, that, that's just, just not, not, not a good example of a person who's supposed to be our president. So uh, Ariel, can you tell us about this uh, 1033 program and uh, what people can do if they want to stop the militarization of our police? Sure. So along with these uh, exchanges of worst tactics, the racism of U.S. police forces and the racism of Israeli police forces, along with these exchange trainings, uh, we also have a program here in the United States, the 1033 program, which transfers uh, supposed leftover excess military equipment from the US military into the hands of local police forces and communities. And this has been going on since 1990. It was part of the war on drugs, which was really just uh, another part of the war on black and brown communities. And uh, during that time, uh, this program was developed and it's still in operation. So when we see tanks rolling on, uh, onto the streets of Minneapolis when we see them first now we you know all over DC uh, this isn't coincidence this isn't coincidence that our military that our police forces which are supposed to be parts of our community look like the invasion of uh, countries across the world that the U.S. has carried out. It's because it is the same equipment and the same weapons. Uh, there is work being done in Congress right now, and that's only thanks to this enormous amount of pressure that there is work being done in Congress right now to repeal the 1033 program. So just to be clear, this program is one that actually gives what is uh, called uh, leftover extra Pentagon equipment, but some of it is brand new, uh, to police departments. And it comes with this terrible caveat, which is a use it or lose it. Uh, so they have to use it within a year, which is an incentive to uh, be out on the streets um, using uh, grenades, using these tanks. I mean, I was out on the streets in Miami uh, this weekend and there were tanks out on the streets. Uh, it is a wow. very jarring, horrible thing to see. And um, so we've been working for a long time to try to stop this program because it's our tax dollars that go to the Pentagon that then get cycled into these police departments. So um, there, uh, there has never been enough support in Congress to pass legislation. But now there's an effort by uh, Senator Schatz from Hawaii who is trying to put it on as an amendment to the uh, National Defense Authorization Act and uh, pass it that way. So we are encouraging people to contact their Congress people to support this amendment and they can go to the Code Pink website. Is that right, uh, Ariel, to find out how they can sign up and support this initiative? Yep, just go to codepink.org and you'll see it there on the page. And we need other members of Congress, uh, other members of, to, to join in with this as, and help get this through. There's another thing that Congress can do, uh, which is very easily to do an add-on um, uh, onto these um, authorizations, which is to say that no money can be used 
for the military, not, the, not including the National Guard, the rest of the military, to be used in domestic disturbances. And oh, so yeah. just cutting the money off is something Congress could do. And it would be nice if we heard more Democrats and especially Democrats in the leadership like Nancy Pelosi, instead of doing her own photo op holding her Bible, um, uh, come out with concrete proposals like that and pushing that for the whole Democratic Party to get behind it. So those are some things that we can do that are very much related to uh, the work of trying to stop militarization overseas and at home and try to save some of our tax dollars to be used for the things that you, Darlene, have been talking about, education in the community, uh, better health care in the community, better housing, uh, and um, so we encourage you to go to the Code Pink website and look at those programs. So what is your hope about what can come out of this terrible tragedy and all the protests and all the attention um, that not just the U.S., but the world does now put on the situation inside the U.S.? Well, first of all, for George Floyd, I'd like to say his name and also let his family know I'm in solidarity with them and that they will be an indictment for all the officers involved and that we will start having officers being accountable for their actions all over the country because it's not right to um, abuse your power. It's not right to have on a badge and a gun and think you could do whatever you want to anyone and it's not just on the streets. It's, you can't just do it at home either. It's not right. And um, that they will still get officers more help, what we were working on in Baltimore City, for their mental health. Because um, this is not just on their job. This is something that's way within because they've been working too many long hours and a lot of them come from the military. And, um, you know, I want them to start hiring these police officers who were in the military because we don't want to hear the excuse that they thought that they were in the war or they thought something else was going on besides they were in a regular city and not in a war zone. That has to stop. You know, it's interesting you bring that up, Darlene, because I remember when we were with you and a bunch of the moms in uh, the Code Pink House in Washington, D.C., and I said something like, how many of you know that the police... Uh, who killed your sons were in the military and the majority of the moms raised their hands. And that was just chilling for me. Um, so what you say is so true that there are a lot of police departments that give preference to people who've been in the military. And there they come back from having uh, been trained to shoot and for being rewarded for shooting. Uh, come back to the U.S. and 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 given a gun and put put out in the street, uh, so it doesn't make sense. Now there yeah. are a lot of people who are talking about defunding the police, finding alternatives to the police. Are you going in that direction? Yes, I'm considering it because if we can, if we can stop their retirement and find ways of how we can defund them. I'm very interested in that because for one, the families are not compensated. Uh, we don't get to go to trial. You know, we, um, there's no 
amount that you can give us for the death of our loved one. But many of us, many of us have not even had a settlement. Here, my granddaughter is going to college in a little while when COVID lifts, lifts up. And she has a sister that's in high school. My grandkids should not have to be worrying about college tuition and all these type of things. They should had some type of trust fund or something, but they give a, but they give you three years to be able to file this with the police. And when you're so bereaved and you don't understand what's going on and you don't have a lot of people to lead God and help you, and then they tell you that the statues um, have, have um, gone and it's too late for you to do so many things. And, and, and you don't understand or you may have a lawyer and the case get dragged out and dragged out and dragged out and, um, you know, and you still don't, you know, receive anything for it. And so I just feel as though, like, it's not fair. My granddaughter is scraping to get scholarship to go to school of her choice where she wants to go. Thank God that with the trauma, she was able to still be a 4.1 her sisters are 4.6. I don't know how they do it. I just pray for them every day that they can stay focused on their schoolwork. And I feel she deserves to have a full scholarship. This is how I feel. Not just her, but many other mothers. Right now, Valerie Bell's granddaughter is going to college. So some of us who lost our children due to police are um, have children that's, get, that's graduating. And um, me... I only work two hours a week now with students for trauma and I wasn't working for two and for two years by choice because I chose to be an advocate and an activist against this violence and to become a speaker. But even with that, um, I didn't get the type of payment that I was going to be received. Many colleges only can give you a couple, couple hundred dollars to speak, but I'm still out here trying to provide for myself as well. So um, I made that choice, you know, to stop working and to do the things that I do. I made the choice to talk about health and wellness to mothers, to tell them how I got to where I am. And also I'm in the middle of writing my book and it's called How I Made It Through. I have a journal that I'll be publishing because I want people to know that with all that I went through, all the weight loss, all the depression and everything I went through, that I got up and I stood up and I said, I can't be silent anymore. And I want these mothers to know you can stand up regardless of what the narrative is they say about your child and what they said that they have done. Because our children was loved by us, have family and loved ones that love them as well. So this is one reason why you need to get up and speak out no matter what. So before we start to wind down, I'm wondering if you can tell us about your organization, Mothers on the Move, and how we can, how our listeners can support. Thank you so much. So Mothers on the Move was founded in 2010, and um, I created this organization so I can help mothers, fathers, and family members um, get resources and help fight legislations on police accountability. Later on, my friends started, children started getting killed in community violence. So I became united with them as well. Um, my website is dkain, dot org, And um, 
follow my website, follow my Facebook, Darlene Kane. I am on Twitter and I am on Instagram. Um, I have um, asked people to help me with my cash app because a lot of people want to me to um, sell the t-shirts that I wear because I make my own t-shirts. And so um, that's another thing people do ask for my cash app because I'm out here doing these things um, without any funding. Well, we know, Darlene, that you've been uh, working nonstop for over a decade now, um, that you've uh, brought a lot of help to other mothers and young people and people all over the community. I know you are much loved in your community and uh, can't thank you enough for what you're doing. Uh, we're so sorry for your personal loss and for uh, all the trauma that uh, is very hard to heal when we have a country that continues to um, be uh, so racist and uh, the violence continues on a regular basis and uh, it's so hard to find the solutions we really need. Uh, but let's hope that, um, that this time we can make some real changes, that the yes. protests don't stop, that people stay in the streets, uh, and that um, we force these issues as raw as they are out into the open um, so they can be healed. So much for joining us and Thank you. Um, sharing your story and your work. And we will continue to be in touch about uh, ways that we can work together and uh, support this movement. Thank you so much. I believe that together we can make change. Let's do it. Much love to you. Bye-bye, Darlene. Thank you. Much love. Peace. You are listening to Code Pink Radio, WPFW in Washington, D.C., and WBAI in New York City. We'll be right back. This is America. Don't catch you slipping now. Don't catch you slipping now. Look what I'm whipping now. This is America. Don't catch you slipping now. Don't catch you slipping now. Look what I'm whipping now. This is America. Don't catch you slipping now. Look how I'm living now. Police be tripping now. Yeah, this is America. Guns in my area. I got the strap. I gotta carry them. Yeah, yeah, I'ma go into this. Yeah, yeah, this is Gorilla. Yeah, yeah, I'ma go get the bag. Yeah, yeah, or I'ma get the pad. Yeah, yeah, I'm so cold like yeah. Yeah, I'm so dull like yeah. Woo, we gon' blow like yeah. Welcome back to Code Pink Radio. You are joining us on WBAI Radio 99.5 FM in New York City and WPFW 89.3 in Washington, D.C. It's been a hard week 
We've watched a lot. Um, we know as anti-war activists that there has been a war on many people in the United States since its founding and before, and that the United States is the largest purveyor of violence on the planet. But we know that. But right now we're getting to watch the world learn it and the people who live inside of the United States who agree to the structures and the rules of the United States look in the mirror of what they have been propping up. And it's, it's hard, it's hard for all of us. So I grieve with you and I, um, I know that we're, we're holding the space for the rage to be expressed because there is so much of it. And I am very excited today to introduce you to Akila Shirelles, a dear friend who uh, has some hope for us also to nourish our hearts with. First, I want to start with, I met Akila Shirelles back in about 93, 94, after he had brokered the truce between the Crips and the Bloods the night before the Rodney King uprisings. And um, it was through Akila and the project he developed called the Community um, Self-Determination Institute. It was there that I learned that war comes home to our communities. And it was that lesson that took me to the steps of the White House with my primal scream, no war in Iraq. So he's a powerful teacher for peace. And um, I'm also a dear friend and went through the death of his son um, from a bullet in his community in Watts. I was also with him when one day when he decided to, to invest himself in his community, that he has a deep love for his community. And, um, and I would say this is the black community, not just Watts, but the communities around the country that he's been serving for the last 25 years. I've watched him be pulled off by mayors and in multiple directions in the last 25 years. So Akila, thank you for joining us on Code Pink Radio today. Thank you so much for having me, Jody. <laughs> so I, you know, picked up the New York Times the other day, and I know what you've been doing in Newark. But uh, as an as an activist, it's always when the when the media can report what we're doing, then we know we've done the right thing. Right. We, we know we've gotten there, yeah. and you've gotten there. And I don't want to describe it. I want you to describe what this journey has been and um, where you arrived to this week that really proved uh, proved your pudding works. <laughs> That's right. Yes. Well, thank you so much, Jody. You know, I, um, you know, we, we go back many, many years, you know, um, I like to say that we've been in the trenches together and on the front line um, in, in terms of being anti-war activists, you know, you nationally and internationally. Um, and, and my work um, being essentially about Indian wars and urban communities all across this country, right? Um, you know, the black community has been under siege um, since, you know, um, our landing here, essentially. Um, 350 years of slavery, 50 years of Jim Crow. Um, and um, still, you know, the, the system finds a way to blame the victim, right? Um, as you said, in 92, I was instrumental in organizing the peace treaty that 
um, uh, that changed the quality of life for folks in the Watts community. And, um, you know, not long after that, I met um, uh, Ras Baraka, who um, is, um, I, I'd like to say, the most progressive mayor in the country. He's the mayor of the city of Newark. Um, when he was elected um, in 2014, and our, our work starts actually a little bit before that, in, in 2004, um, he reached out to me in LA um, and told me about the war, the gang war that was happening in the city of Newark between Grape Street, which is, was my neighborhood, was the biggest crip gang in the city of Newark, New Jersey, and in the state of uh, New Jersey, and, um, and, you know, a blood faction, Nine Trey Bishop. He brought me and my brother and, and some of the brothers to Newark to meet these cats. Um, in turn, um, he raised some money to bring us to LA. I mean, to bring them to LA and we developed a relationship. Um, it took another 10 years before he became mayor in 2014. And he reached out to me um, and said, hey, I'd like you to come in and build um, the community-based public safety initiative that we've been talking about you know, for so many years. The charge that I was given was to build infrastructure, to put systems in place and turn it over to the local people. Um, we started in 2014. Um, you know, Newark has been on the top most violent city list for the past 50 consecutive years. Um, in 2015, after our first year, um, we, we were still having triple digit you know, numbers in homicides in the city. Um, but the mayor and his genius pulled together a, um, a coordinated strategy around reducing violence and, and crime in the city called the Safer Newark Council. Um, we formed the Newark Community Street Team. We partnered with the Department of Health. Um, we partnered with the uh, um, Newark PD um, and several other community-based agencies. Clergy um, with the idea of working through a public health model to bring solutions to um, the problem of violence in the neighborhood. 2016, we had double-digit reductions in homicide. Um, 2017, we followed that, um, and for, for now, four consecutive years in a row, we've had decreases of violent crime and murder. Um, NCST has, um, the Newark Community Street Team has become the city's community-based public safety initiative. We have a three-pronged strategy. Um, we have a high-risk intervention team that intervenes in individual and group conflicts. We do safe passage. Um, we did a study with the Department of Health and discovered that most of the violence that's happening in the city is happening in and around schools. Things happen in school that spill into the community onto the weekends and vice versa. Um, so we, we do safe passage at 12 schools in the South Ward. Um, that was our, our targeted area that we wanted to focus on first in the city. Um, 21 individuals, credible messengers. Um, and, you know, this is our forward facing work. We make sure our kids go to school safely and that they come home safely. Then we provide a set of wraparound services to them and support services. Um, we launched the city's first hospital-based violence intervention program because that's also one of the key places that victims and survivors of violence end up. Um, in addition to um, like our theory of change is we put victims at the center of our public safety strategy. We believe that if you serve victims properly, then they don't become perpetrators, right? Um, and uh, And so, the work has been phenomenal. In 2019, we had, um, you know, our lowest um, uh, reduction in crime in 30 years in the city. Um, in the South Ward, where we started, we had a negative 48% reduction in homicides um, in the neighborhood. In the next three years, our goal is to take that to zero. Um, and again, this is a community-based public safety strategy. It's, uh, it's been extremely hard one. 
Um, we're, we're fortunate that we have Anthony Ambrose as our public safety director in the city, um, Chief Darnell Henry. Both of these individuals grew up in the city of Newark as the mayor has. Um, they have a really um, like, you know, deep connection to wanting to see change happen. Um, and um, and I'm, I'm just blessed to be in service to all of these wonderful people in the city of Newark. It's the most passionate, probably the most challenging city I've ever worked in in my entire life. Um, but, you know, they say that, you know, that, that diamonds are made under extreme pressure, right? And but so, let's tell our listeners what happened this weekend. So um, yeah. here so you are. So you've explained what you've been doing. Yes. And here you are when the country's um, in up, uprising over many acts of violence that happen every day, but these have really are the, the it couldn't be more blatant. What, oh, what's always happening, what has always been happening with the knee on the neck, you know, it's been how people live and, but something very different happened in Newark or New Jersey than all the other cities. Maybe you can tell us what happened. Absolutely. So, you know, in response to um, the public execution of, of, of George Floyd, um, you know, the city has gone up in flames, right? I mean, multiple cities all across the country. One of the one of the interesting things is that um, from 1965 to 1967, all of these cities, you know, across the U.S. had exploded in violence because of police brutality. Um, but you know, in Newark, one of was one of the cities that got hit, you know, like the hardest. I mean, we're just recovering still um, from the '67 rebellion, right? Um, but we we were determined that. We wanted to honor and make sure that 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 um, that George Floyd's uh, death wasn't in vain, but we also wanted to ensure that we didn't burn down and destroy the city in the process. So you know, uh, we had a huge protest on Saturday that was organized by our very own Larry Ham and um, and, and, and and Pop. Um, the mayor led the rally, um, you know, because the mayor is an activist in in, in his own right, um, and and then he also put out the call to the Newark Community Street Team, the Newark Anti-Violence Coalition, um, NPD, um, and uh, you know, the, the health department, and all of our organizations um, converged. And we went out in the community to ensure that this would be a peaceful protest. Um, so, uh, and, as a, and as a direct result of it, we didn't, our city didn't go up in flames. Um, and uh, we had a, 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 a very you know, robust protest. I would say there was 25,000 people out. Um, in the streets um, without a whole lot of destruction and violence. There were several like incidents that could have popped off and, and went crazy, but you'd be surprised that, um, you know, not only our team, you know, was there to step in and, and stop people from, um, you know, vandalizing the city, but also the residents themselves. There was one incident, you know, that I witnessed um, in which a young man grabbed a baseball bat and he ran to the Dunkin' Donuts and he, hit the window, you know, at the Dunkin' Donuts. And that's all it took. As soon as he hit the window, it was like 30 people converged on this cat, took the, took the bat from him, um, and all standing locked arms in front of the window, you know, and told him that, hey, no, this is not going to happen here. You know, we want to protest. We want to express our anger and our frustration, but you're going to do that without tearing up the city. Um, you know, one of the things that, that Ambrose did, you know, Anthony Ambrose, who is our public safety director, they made the decision not to put cops out on the street in riot gear, you know, um, they, uh, they, they, the, our officers were all on the peripheral, 
you know, of, of the movement and the residents, you know, and our team, we, we made, we dispersed amongst a crowd and we communicated with people. And every time some folks wanted to get crazy and stuff, we, we talked them down and we, you know, we shared with them that, hey, this is not, this is not going to happen here. Not this time. Well, and also, wasn't the mayor wounded in 67 um, in the uprising? I'm not, I'm not sure oh. if the mayor was wounded, but I know his father. So his oh, father, right. Amiri Baraka, yeah. you know, was, uh, was accosted in, um, you know, by, um, you know, by the police and the National Guard in 1967. Um, so, you know, it, it's crazy. 50 years later, here we find ourselves right back in the middle of a, of a similar, um, you know, type of um, experience but with a whole different outcome. Um, and it's because of the leadership of the mayor. I mean, the mayor is, um, is, is genius, man, just in terms of his approach um, to this work. But he invested in this, like every other mayor has not invested in this. And, and the thing is, and you tried this in Los Angeles and, and, and it did change your community. Yeah. So it wasn't like you were bringing something new. You, you, you'd had an experience of like having some 60 people that were funded from police money to community money to help. So this is your second time. And, but you also help a lot of other mayors. And I wonder, could you tell us the story of another mayor or another community that you tried to help and warn and what happened? Well, I mean, you know, there's multiple cities across the country that I have the, the, the fortune of, of working in through my work with the Collective Healing Initiative, um, with the International Association of Chiefs of Police, I think that, you know, that politics, um, you, know, uh, you know, old entrenched ways of actually doing things kind of take precedence over um, sometimes the best way of going about doing the work. Um, we, I, I work in Minneapolis and, and I work with the, the, you know, I've worked with the command staff there through our strategy and, you know, no Rando, Rondo, who is, uh, who is a great chief, you know, of Deputy Chief Knight, my man Glenn Burt, who runs the, um, the the community navigators program, so we're in consistent conversation with folks, and we've been trying to support them in coming up with different strategies and being able to approach you know community and and how to develop a complementary strategy to law enforcement so that we don't always have to deploy the cops, and um, and you know uh, some people like will embrace this concept and idea and roll it out, and some people um, don't, right? And so um, it's unfortunate to see what happened. I mean, you know, in Minneapolis, I mean, you can't contain that type of, you know, rage and anger. Um, but there are tactics that one can take in terms of how to create intentional space for people to be able to protest respectfully um, without like, you know, bringing out cops with riot gear and, um, you know, or attempting to, you know, to quell people's like rage and anger. You have to create a big yard. Um, and, and give people the room to be able to express themselves and, you know, figure out how to support them. Now, we, we're seeing now, after the fact, you know, people are, you know, police chiefs are all standing up and coming out and they're marching with people, um, you know, with the, with the protesters, um, because, you know, they're learning, right? They're being, their strategy is being informed based upon what they're seeing happening all across the country. Um, and, and I just want to say, like, you know, to the public, that, you know, you can't have public safety without the public, right? For far too long, we say public safety and people say police, right? And, and public, the police are only one small aspect of the public safety process. If you don't have an engaged citizenry, 
who can respond with a relationship-based strategy to resolve you know, personal disputes. I mean, we looked at the data in Newark in, in, in 2015, 62% of the murders in the city were all domestic disputes that actually led to violent you know, um, encounters. And so our whole thing is that if we could, if you could train us, you know, um, or you could train people to stand in the gap, to, to, um, to respond to those, that, that, that sexual, physical, and psychological abuse that's, that people suffer through, right? Um, we can actually shift the, the way, uh, the outcome of, of so many of these, um, these situations. Wow, so, you know, looking at Minneapolis, I guess what is important is we can see in Minneapolis what happened when you, when you don't build that and when there's all that tension that's not actually being addressed and what happens when you spend the time to actually create a community um, where the money, because in Los Angeles, I mean, I think you suggested that we could lower the, the bill in Los Angeles for the cops some 20% if we in, invested it in the communities, which would be amazing. Absolutely. Well, you know, Eric, um, you know, Mayor Garcetti, um, you know, we, we last week, you know, we were texting back and forth and just having a conversation because, you know, right now there's a big crisis with the budget because of the COVID response. And, you know, the mayor um, and, and the city council was proposing a budget in which they were cutting like all of like social service programs, having people to, um, you know, to, uh, to furlough from work. And I mean, and increasing, you know, the LAPD budget by over $100 million. It's like, it's ridiculous. Okay, um, and it's it's a it's, it's a formula for you know just for destruction and and you know um, you know I I consider you know um, the mayor to be um, a, an ally and a good friend and sometimes he's on the wrong side of justice in terms of this work right and so the mayor also has invested um, more than any other mayor before him in community-based intervention um, he's I mean he's doubled the size of, of community intervention in the city of LA. Um, he took it from $6 million to over $11 million. And so he assured me last week that, because um, they were talking about cutting the Gang Reduction Youth Development Program by $3 million, that, that um, he had found some additional funding in, in, in other departments and that he was ensuring that they would be, you know, that their funding would go untouched um, going into 2021. Now, here's a challenge, though. Um, Community-based intervention through GRID, it's only getting $11 million. LAPD has a $2.5 billion budget. It is ridiculous. And when violence started to peak again in 2015, right, um, if you looked at GRID, in all 23 areas of the city where they fund GRID, violence was down 10%, you know? And so I'm like, why are we investing in more policing? You know, this, this incident, you know, that's happened with, with George Floyd, it's an inflection point. And it, and it really says that that policing as we know it is going to change forever in our communities it's, there is an alternative yeah there is there is complementary strategies to law enforcement you know we don't have to put hundreds of millions of dollars into policing you know um and we don't have to continue to put our cops in harm's way because they are having tremendous emotional psychological like duress and and in many cases if they say it in the department, it's a bad word. They get degunned and desked, you know? And so our whole thing is this. These individuals are also a part of our community. There are uncles and mothers and fathers and sisters, right? And so we want to make sure that, that, that they're getting the proper 
counseling and therapy um, so that they can actually be able to serve the public without harming people, right? Because we know that hurt people hurt people, right? And so our whole thing is that there has to be a real reform in terms of, of policing. And at the same time, we have to invest heavily into community-based um, alternatives because there's no need to, to, to spend 54% of the general fund, you know, on, on police when you have a community-based alternative that is just as effective. We have the data to prove it, you know, Dr. George Elite. We have PIs um, who studied this work in, in, in LA, um, I mean, to Ignazium, right? And, and, and we also have seen models all across the country. I mean, Cure Violence does a great job in aggregating the, you know, the practices, the best practices and putting them in one place. You got David Kennedy and them at John Jay, you know, um, with, the national, with the National Network. I mean, there, there are a lot of strategies out here that exist. And, and we're saying, use them, invest in them, you know, and uh, yeah. Fantastic, because we started talking about you work locally and I work globally. And this is the same problem we have with war. Right. Over 50% of our tax dollars goes to weapon and war and violence across the planet. Mm -hmm. And as we saw, that comes home to our communities. And, and we have watched the militarization of our streets since 9-11. That those people, that, those cops that went to war have brought that war home. Mm -hmm. And, you know, like I've even, you know, met um, black mothers whose sons have been lost by cops who have PTSD. And like you said, they can't even talk about it. Um, but they're out there on the streets. And so, um, you know, together we need to, like, weapons are not safety. They are violence. That's right. And the fact that the cops in Newark didn't, you know, come out in riot gear, stayed away. Look, I was marching the streets in Santa Monica this weekend, mm. and it was beautiful and loving and generous. And all of a sudden the cops entered the, and it becomes a whole nother feeling. Right. Um, and it loses and the tension grows and then people, uh, uh, something happens that triggers more violence that becomes the destruction of property because of the, the pushing in even closer in that sense of not even having the freedom to express one's anger, rage, grief and despair of the system that we live inside of. So may we, you know, find ways to wake up those with power, yes. that there are solutions. I mean, on our side, um, you know, we're working like in Latin America for a good neighbor policy because the U.S. continues like we just, you know, a coup of a Latin American president in Bolivia, you know, trying to destroy Venezuela and have, a, you know, a coup there and, you know, supporting Bolsonaro to be president of Brazil and the, and, and the fallout of that. And then what you look at is these Cuban doctors who are in, you know, 30 countries bringing healing and caring and your work Aquila is about healing and caring. And so we need to move the funding of violence and war that violence begets violence. And we need to move that to healing and caring and love. That's right. So I am deeply grateful to you for joining our show today. I know you're super busy. Thank you for all you do for peace. And um, as we know, it could pink, you know, that the, uh, we live inside of war economy and we only be, need to be cultivating a local peace economy and you do that. That's right. 
So thank you, Akila. One, one final thing that I just want to say, Jody, is that, um, that safety is different things, you know, to different people. And, um, and for us, safety is not, you know, crime stats. It's not the absence of violence or, or war, you know. Safety is the presence of well-being in the infrastructure to support victims and survivors in their respective healing journey. Right. And so I, I want to just kind of, you know, leave that with folks because it is critical that we understand that that um, we can create a safe community um, and, it, and it doesn't have to be anti, you know, um, cops. Thank you. Thank you. So we're um, want to thank you for being on Code Pink Radio. We're on WBAI Radio 99.5 FM in New York City and WPFW 89.3 Washington, D.C. Yes. Peace. Love. Bye. We're not a fight. We're the